we have an amazing show planned for you this morning. Joining me are a Pulitzer Prize winning and former U.S. Poet Laureate and an author who is setting the literary community on fire with her recent book, which pays tribute to the dopeness of Black girls and women. This morning on our exclusive Ask the Author segment, we are celebrating Black women, our pain, and our triumphs. Natasha Trethway was 19 when her former stepfather shot and killed her mother on Memorial Drive in Atlanta. After cleaning out her apartment, Natasha left the city and vowed never to look back. Years later, when a job brought her back to the area, she decided to finally reckon with her past. The result is Memorial Drive, an exquisitely written memoir that tells the story of Natasha's mother and her own journey of self-discovery and healing. It is my honor to welcome to the show Pulitzer Prize winning author, former U.S. poet laureate, Northwestern English professor and author of the new book, Memorial Drive, A Daughter's Memoir. The ever-talented Natasha Trethway is in the house and I'm super excited. Good morning, Natasha. Good morning, thank you for having me. Wow, Natasha, you are so incredibly accomplished. You have published five volumes of poetry and most people know you uh, because of your you know, amazing body of poetry. So I, I wanna ask you, what prompted you to write this uh, nonfiction narrative about your mother and her relationship with your stepfather? Well, you know, this is a story that um, I needed to tell because the more I was being recognized as a poet, uh, as my career took off, the more that I was being written about and my backstory would be part of the story. And in the backstory, there was always a mention of my mother, uh, a very small mention of her, um, almost like an afterthought or uh, simply uh, reduced to a victim and not the person who made me a writer, not the person who raised me and uh, is responsible for the woman that I became. You know, I write from two existential wounds. One, the wounds of history, America's original sin, the wounds of um, white supremacy and racism. My second wound, the deeper wound that really made me a writer was losing my mother when I was 19. And I needed to tell the story of that to the world. One of the things that really struck me uh, was that the book is really uh, about a series of mysteries, mysteries around your mother, uh, what caused her marriage uh, to her first husband, your father to fail, what caused that marriage to fail, a mystery about what attracted her to your stepfather uh, who turned out to be an abusive husband who finally killed her uh, in 1985. Uh, so I want to ask you how difficult was it for you uh, to, to really relive that past growing up with your stepfather? It was terribly difficult to have to confront things that I had spent um, my entire adult life trying to forget. Yeah, there, there are some really incredible passages uh, in the book where you describe your childhood and, and what it was like having a, a Black mother and a white father in Gulfport, Mississippi. Can you share more about you know, your upbringing, uh, being the daughter of an interracial couple? Well, you know, I grew up um, in Mississippi in a very tight-knit um, African-American community. This is a community that had been founded not long after uh, emancipation by former slaves. And my uh, mother's family was pretty prominent 
in the community among people who knew them. My uncle's son um, owned a nightclub, a, a baseball team. Um, my great my grandmother um, was a seamstress, um, and my great aunt Sugar, her sister, helped to found a, a church right there in the community. And so um, I lived a kind of uh, lovely sheltered existence among them. And when my mother um, met my father at Kentucky State College, which was, you know, an HBCU, um, he came back to Mississippi with her and into that community, he was welcomed. So, you know, he was, you know, the only white guy living in the community. And yet um, he was part of that close knit, sheltered, lovely life that I had before their marriage ended and we moved to Atlanta. And, and then what happened when you moved from that Mississippi community that you just described where your mom was a part of this prominent family? Uh, things changed though when your mom moved to Atlanta. Tell us about that period. We moved to Atlanta so that she could go to graduate school at Atlanta University to get a master's degree in social work. And so um, I spent um, every three months back home in Mississippi. That was life-saving to get to go home and be with my grandmother. But our world was very different in Atlanta. And um, not long after we got there, she met the man that would become her second husband and her killer. And when you talk about your, your stepfather in the book, you mentioned that your mom, I guess, made more money than he, than he did. He was a Vietnam vet. Do you think that played, that the fact that she you know, was financially better situated than he was, that that played some role in the abuse that uh, your mom suffered uh, at the hands of your stepfather? I, I think it was a factor in that. I, I think that it probably angered him terribly. It, it seems very much to me like um, Alice Walker's wonderful novel, The Third Life of Grange Copeland. And in that novel, uh, a character named Brownfield is so jealous of his wife's education and elegance um, that he has to sort of beat it out of her. I want to step back for a minute because you also in the book describe your mom giving birth to you uh, in this segregated hospital. Uh, and you say that you were born on the 100th day, I guess, anniversary of the Mississippi Confederate, uh, you know, they, they celebrate the Mississippi Confederate Memorial Day. Why that uh, passage, why that historical reference point uh, about, you know, that, that historical note in Mississippi and how it ties into your actual birth? Well, I mean, I think it's important to, to place the examination of one's personal history within the larger context of history. You know, as, as Baldwin said, the history of the Negro in America is the history of America. And the idea that a daughter of miscegenation, interracial marriage that was illegal there and in as many as 20 other states in the nation at the time of my birth, born on Confederate Memorial Day, in the midst of um, an onslaught of celebrations around the state to um, glorify the lost cause and white supremacy and the attempt to maintain slavery in this country. I found that, that so moving, particularly given the moment that we're in, Natasha, that this moment of racial reckoning that's happening, uh, I don't know when you started writing this memoir, but did you, you know, in your wildest dream, imagine that the book would be released in this year where we've seen global protests around the killing of George Floyd. And we've seen America really wrestle yet again, you know, with the issue of systemic racism. No, I could not have imagined that. And yet 
it makes sense to me. You know, being a native Mississippian, it feels to me that what we've seen again and again is what so many of us have known was always there, festering just beneath the surface. And I've always been concerned with those symbols of hate and white supremacy that are meant to tell black people to stay in their place. It's hard to get around them when you grow up in the deep South and it's everywhere in the monuments that are erected, in the flag, um, in the names of buildings and roads and bridges, so many things named for staunch Confederates and Klansmen and uh, governors generally often the same, one and the same. So, you know, in your book, you're obviously telling the impact of that racist South. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've read about it in history books and you tell, you know, you tell your story uh, through the lens of someone who was actually born during that time and grew up in that period. But you also tell this really powerful story about domestic violence. Uh, and I was moved by, I guess, the part in the book where you said, even as a fifth grader, you had some self-awareness of the abuse that your mother uh, was suffering and you went to tell a teacher. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, it was in the fifth grade that I first uh, was made aware of what was happening. Um, and I decided that I had to do something about it. You know, I knew that it wasn't right. And so the first thing I did was, um, because I wasn't uh, able to concentrate in school that day, I told my fifth grade teacher that it had happened. And her response to me was, well, sometimes adults get mad at each other. And I, there was nothing that she was going to do at that moment. And so I went home still thinking that I had to try to do something. And so I thought that if I told my mother that I knew about it, somehow that would make it stop. I think she must have believed that too, because that night I heard her tell him that Tasha knows and it didn't stop anything. So you had the courage as a, I don't know, fifth grader, maybe you're 11 years old, 12 years old, to actually have that conversation, Natasha, with your mom? I did. Um, and I think that, that having that courage um, has everything to do with the kind of uh, resilience and uh, strength that was instilled in me in that um, early childhood community and by watching my mother, who was incredibly strong. I've had the uh, opportunity on the show, Natasha, to interview victims of some uh, domestic violence, uh, particularly in this COVID crisis, there's been an increase in, in violence. And one of the things that so many of the, the women that I, I've had a chance to talk to talk about is, is how the, the lengths that they go through to try to hide the violence from their children. Did you see that happening with your mom? Was she you know, creating stories around, you know, perhaps bruises and marks that were left on her body as a result of the abuse? I think she tried very hard um, to protect us, to protect us from knowing and um, to keep it from people she worked with. Um, she writes about a, scene, a, a moment where uh, even her veneer of strength breaks down and some of her coworkers realize what's going on. But she was very effective in protecting us. Um, there's a particular moment where 
I come home from school and I'm really excited because I've I've just joined the literary society and I've written a short story and I announce um, that I'm going to be a writer. And um, he looks at me and basically tells me I'll do no such thing. And I can see my mother tense and the way her, her fist uh, tightens around a fork. And she clenches her teeth and she says, she will do whatever she wants. And even then I knew that she was gonna pay the price for it. But as much as she could, you know, deal with what he was doing to her, she could not let him destroy me. And so she put herself in the way of that, knowing the consequences. I, I just, I can imagine Natasha, just even reliving this, is, you know, conjures up so many painful images for you. Do, do you recall what it was? What, what was that catalyst for your mom to finally say enough? You know, we see these statistics around domestic violence uh, victims and some numbers suggest that it takes women, particularly seven times to make an effort to leave an abusive relationship before they're actually able to, uh, you know, really extricate themselves from that kind of relationship. Did your mom go through that process where she would try to leave and she would go back? She would try to leave and go back? No. Um, you know, up until the moment that we left, she, um, she tried some of the avenues that one might try getting, um, you know, a, uh, talking to a therapist, a marriage counselor, and when nothing worked and, and she began to see that he was dissembling, that he was getting, um, you know, potentially more and more dangerous, um, not just to her, but also to us, to the children, uh, she made the decision to get away and that was it. Um, we left and um, she never went back. I mean, it's worth noting that the statistics also suggest that your chances of dying, of being killed, go up, not when you stay, but when you leave. So that was the dangerous thing to leave, but she did it and she got a divorce and she was divorced from him almost two years before he killed her, but he continued to stalk her. He tried to kill her once before, after they were divorced went to prison for a very short amount of time because he was not convicted of attempted murder, just of criminal trespass, got out a few months later and went back and finished what he started. But she'd done everything right. And, you know, that's the tragic part of, of these cases. So many of them end, uh, unfortunately, in the way your moms did, even when women do everything right, as you said, they, they get a divorce, they sever all ties, they move away from the community, uh, where they perhaps even, you know, had their kids in school and in communities where they had ties. I know, Natasha, you also write about the stepfather, not just following your mom, but actually following you. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about that experience when you realized that, that he was also stalking you. Uh, yeah, he, um, you know, as early as I can remember, he was um, breaking into my journal. He was listening on onto every phone call. He was uh, opening and piecing together notes that I had, you know, been exchanging with friends at school. And on one particular occasion, I was going to see a movie with a friend and going to meet her in the parking lot at the school. And he jumped in the car ahead of me. And I didn't realize that he had done this. 
uh, he jumped in his van and went to the school to see if that was indeed what I was doing. And later on, the woman I was going to meet told me that um, a man had come and stared at her and then driven away. And as I was on my way to the school, I passed his van. So I knew that he was constantly um, watching me as well. And he told my mother this, that he was watching me and could kill me at any time. As a, a lawyer, uh, Natasha, what I also found really interesting about the book was that you had this encounter with a police officer that had actually been at the scene of your mother's death. And it was that encounter with that police officer that led you uh, to be able to have access to you know, the evidence uh, in her case. How did you have that chance encounter with that police officer? It, it was really serendipity, um, but I also think it, it has something to do with the way that you might put yourself back in the proximity of your past and um, be in a situation where you can run into it. Um, my husband and I were walking from our home uh, in Decatur, Georgia, to a restaurant downtown Decatur, and this man uh, saw us, and he came over to our table in the restaurant and said, did I just see you walking from the hotel? And because we weren't coming from the hotel, it never occurred to me that he meant in front of the hotel that we had to pass by on our way to the restaurant. And so he apologized and said, oh, I'm sorry to bother you and went and sat down. But then he sent us a round of drinks and another apology. And I thought, well, that's odd. So I decided to go and introduce myself. And when I did, um, he asked me what I did. Um, and then I asked him what he did. And he said that he was an assistant district attorney in Rockdale County. And I just happened to say, oh, well, I, I knew the assistant district attorney here years ago. And he said, how? And I looked off toward the courthouse and I said, well, there was this case years ago. And that's when he said, was Gwendolyn Gromet your mother and Joey your brother? And the tears started to run down his face. And I looked at his wife and she said, not a day goes by that he doesn't think about your mother. He was indeed the first police officer on the scene the morning that she was murdered. And he had seen me in the jail later on and recognized me 20 years later. That is amazing. Oh my God. And I know that, that he then was able to give you the file. He told me that, yeah, 20 years, you know, after 20 years that they would be purging the records in the courthouse. And so he offered to get them for me and he gave them to me with a bottle of wine. And he said, you're going to need it because it included, you know, all the, 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 her statements, uh, statements from witnesses that morning. Um, her autopsy, all those kind of things were in it. I know you've said, Natasha, that for a long time, you tried to, to just forget and bury, bury really deeply, I guess, in your, your, your psyche, what had happened with your mom. And you say you regret that now. Tell us about you know, that, that moment at which point you said it was time to, to no longer you know, suppress what happened and to really just, you know, lean into it and to embrace it. Well, you know, in trying to forget those, those roughly 10, 12 years or so that we were in Atlanta and she was with him, um, in order to protect myself from the pain of it, meant that I also had to banish memories of her that I would have liked to have kept, that would have comforted me when I needed to think about her. You lose too much when you try to forget. 
But I think deciding that I needed to remember had everything to do with a reckoning, a personal reckoning, and realizing that indeed, um, this is one of the existential wounds that makes me a writer. And that rather than um, trying to cover it over or to bury it, I just need to expose it to light. As Rumi said, the wound is the place where the light enters you. And so rather than suppress it anymore, I decided to deal with it. One of the critics uh, that I read who reviewed the book said, this book is about more than the abuse your mother suffered and her ultimate murder, but it's about the wounds of slavery and racism on the soul of a troubled nation. Do you think that's an accurate summation, Natasha? Well, because there is a through line, um, you know, uh, that that is established early on in the book, you know, as we talked about, not just my birth on Confederate Memorial Day, but the fact that my mother died in the shadow of Stone Mountain, which is our nation's largest monument to the Confederacy, that what we have emblazoned even larger than Mount Rushmore is a Confederate monument. And so it, it, it spoke to me figuratively about what we hold as important and what we inscribe as national cultural memory on the landscape and what is forgotten or buried or erased. Wow. There's so many powerful uh, passages in the book, Natasha, and so many cultural, I guess, flashpoints for so many of us, particularly as women, particularly as Black women. What is it that you hope readers will take away from the book? Well, um, I, I would like people to know something about this remarkable, resilient woman who made me. Um, it, it's been too easy in the aftermath of me winning the Pulitzer and becoming Poet Laureate for people to make an easy assumption that I'm a poet because my father was a poet. Mm -hmm. And my father was my white parent. And what's problematic about that is that it's as if there's a through line from him to me that made me what I am, that I think erases the role that my mother played in really making me who I am. It's so easy for people um, to think that my success is somehow connected to him. When I, when I was growing up, white people would constantly say, if I did anything well, oh, that's your white side. Mm. As if that's where my success, my resilience, my um, ability to do things with language comes from. And I wanted to write the book to say, no, that's actually not where it comes from. It comes from my mother. To quote Shakespeare's sonnet number three, Thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. I am a reflection of who my mother was. Wow, Natasha, <laughs> you, this is, I'm like sitting over here with, with like goosebumps and chills going up and down my spine as you speak about your mother, because I know that is the story for so many black women. Their, their mothers, I grew up with a, a single mother who had three kids before she was 19 and didn't even graduate from high school. But boy, I, I sit here as a Harvard trained lawyer and all the accomplishments I've had in life is because of that 19 year old high school dropout <laughs> and the power that yes. she had. 
Thank you, Natasha, so much. Thank what an you. honor and a privilege to be able to sit down with you and, and to share that story. I just uh, can't thank you enough for uh, all that you have contributed. You are a, such a, a rock star in the literary community and obviously in the community at large. So again, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk with you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Special Report. Please take a moment to share, subscribe, and rate this podcast. I always want to hear your thoughts. You can share your comments with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn by following at Ariva Martin. Thanks and be safe out there.